You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Welcome to SpyCast. My name is Dr. Andrew Hammond, historian and curator here at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. Every week, SpyCast explores the world of intelligence and espionage by bringing you in-depth conversations with spies, spy masters, intelligence officers, and authors. We explore the stories, secrets, tradecraft, and technology of a world that looms beneath the surface of everyday life. Welcome to this week's episode of SpyCast. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond, and I'm the historian curator here at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. This week's guest believes that espionage is about the human soul. It's a very intimate profession. The relationship between a case officer and an agent, and the need to really have a profound insight into their life and their souls. Doug London may be accused of many things, but you can't say that he's shallow. His book, The Recruiter, is based on a 34-year career with the CIA, including multiple field assignments as a CIA chief of station and working in places such as the Middle East, Africa, and South and Central Asia. He didn't get out very much, obviously. Next week, we'll hear more about Doug's career, his forthright views on CIA at the crossroads, the ongoing centrality of human intelligence to the intel business, as well as what he calls the lost art of American intelligence. I'm really pleased to be speaking to you today, Doug, because I found your book really interesting. Books by former intelligence officers, it's like a whole genre unto itself, and they can be classified in various ways, but yours is very broad-ranging it's very thoughtful. You've reflected on your career and on some of the changes that the agency that you work for has went through. So there's a lot I want to dig into there. But just to begin with, I want to start. You said that in the beginning, espionage is about the human soul. I just wondered if you could reflect on that for the benefit of our listeners, because I think that's quite fascinating. Thank you, Andrew. It's a pleasure to be on the program with you. What I sought out to do with this book is make it intimate. What I believe is that espionage is a very intimate profession. It's about people and it's the relationships and a case of responsibilities, ours to them and what they think they may have to us. So by looking over the course of my career, I tried to find anecdotes which brought home what's really unique about the profession and, and about the human dynamics because there's uh, any number of misconceptions, some very glorified and romantified from the movies and, and other books and novels and what have you. And I believe the actual reality is even more exciting, though not Mission Impossible, jumping out of airplanes and helicopters exciting all the time, though that does happen on occasion. 
but relationship between a case officer and an agent and the need to really have such a profound insight window into their life and their souls where your engagement with them is at a level of confessional where they're able to profess their soul because they have to for you to be able to recruit them, but also to run them securely. There's clearly unethical aspects to that. I've often said, and I say to my students, I've always believed that spying is an unethical business that has to be done in the most ethical manner because of the stakes of the responsibilities you have for the human beings who you are leveraging to do things that are not necessarily in their best personal interest. I mean, it sounds a little bit like talking about the confessional. You have to have the listening or the soft skills of a psychiatric nurse or a good religious leader. Yeah, tell us a little bit more about that because that's part of the job that you don't hear that much about. You don't see Daniel Craig as James Bond being touchy-feely and trying to understand where someone's coming from. That's a flippant example, but help us understand that a little bit more, that the confessional nature of the job. Sure, happy to do so. And I'd love to see James Bond have to do a travel accounting as well, you know, <laughs> which is uh, more the reality. You're all sort of amateur psychologists or maybe professional, but I think a lot of that is intuitive. The CIA, at least, has a profile of what a case officer looks like, what a successful case officer ideally looks like since 1947. And so much of it are innate traits. You can't teach some of the skills to case officers that they require. You can't teach that level of personal insight, that ability to manipulate. And it really is a lot about manipulation, but manipulation informed by assessment. So to be able to train somebody to look in somebody's soul, you can't really do that. We basically take people who have some of that natural capacity, and then we formalize it, we build it. But the thing for a case officer is, and I'm asked this question often, what's like the difference between a CIA case officer and let's say an FBI special agent or a military special operations forces person? It's that there's no book for everything. There's no training book to tell you how to deal with any possible set of variables and circumstances you might face at any given moment. And it's a lonely business. It's individual. The case officers out there by themselves, they don't have a lifeline. They don't have a team generally. There are some activities we do with groups, but for the most part, recruiting and handling is an individual business. So you have to have the intuitive ability, the critical thinking to make the right call when you're faced by things that you could not have ever rehearsed. So taking that a step further, we're, we're taking individuals who will learn through experience, right? Because so much of the dynamic is experiential. What do they say? That instinct is experienced reinforced. But teaching somebody that they've got to engage someone where they're disarming them to an extent that these are people that we're pursuing that hold secrets that might come from police states, autocratic societies where they've been conditioned to distrust even their own friends and relatives who could be informers. So breaking that down to put it maybe in a simple coy way, a lot of it is bait and switch. A lot of it is about listening. And when I've trained case officers where I was an instructor at the farm and I, and I teach on, and academically, I talk about being interested and interesting. A good case officer can't be the center of attention. The case officer is not going to earn trust for discretion and reliability by being the one that's telling all the jokes and being a stand-up comic. You have to have a degree of that, I suppose, because you've got to be interesting. But 
Most importantly, you've got to make the agent feel like they are the most special person in the world. They are the center of your universe and the center of the CIA's universe because you're taking them from what was your ploy to first meet them, whatever ploy you used undercover. And I'm not just talking about the cover of what you claim to do officially because if you're a CIA case officer, you're not announcing that. You're under some form of cover, either official for the U.S. government or, or foreign or business or whatever. But your interest has to be something that piques their willingness to see you, right? So they want to, they have to need to talk to you because they want to do it. It's for their interest because they find something in you, not just that you're flattering and you're obsequious and you're telling them how great they are, but there's also something intriguing about you. So I've variously had to study butterflies, birds, squash, roller skating, whatever I needed to do to find some common area of interest that maybe I could help them do something socially or even professionally that they couldn't otherwise get initially, but nothing secret, nothing damaging, and then use that as my avenue into their soul, where we have these shared experiences, where we have long opportunity, time on target, we'd say, that they start trusting me with what matters most in their life. And then once I understand what that is, manipulating that in a way which serves U.S. government interests, to be fair, to be honest, but in their mind promotes their interests. An agent has to want to work with you, has to be invested, which also is one of the other illusions that while some services use it, coercion just doesn't work. CIA doesn't use coercion because we're just great folks and we're unbelievably ethical and moral. I'd like to say that, but we don't use coercion because it just plain doesn't work. What we need is we need an agent who's so invested in the relationship that they want to come back. They want to keep coming back. And likewise, that you could trust them. I don't want to meet someone who I've blackmailed on the back streets of Karachi or Beirut because my life's in their hands as well. And I also have to stand behind the intelligence they produce. And how can you stand behind the intelligence of someone who's being forced to do something with coercion? You need to be able to vet them, test them, and stand behind them to the community. So getting to that point takes some time usually with some people more than others. It's been said, and I agree, that with the hardest targets, those that come from a natural police state, I would include Russia, China, Iran, North Korea. It's not like they haven't thought about it, right? But that they've thought about wanting to do something about their lives, maybe for ideological reasons, maybe because they have a sick child, maybe because they want vengeance, they've been messed over or bypassed or whatever like that. They're not going to just profess that to anybody, let alone an official from a foreign government. So doing that takes an amazing amount of trust which you have to demonstrate your reliability, your discretion. Some of the hardest targets, like those I just named, will often test their case officers when they start realizing, okay, he or she's not really a, a lover of butterfly collection and who just happens to work for the U.S. government. This is more than serendipity, but can I trust them? Because while many of the folks we target have the interest, taking the risk is a tremendous leap. Being at the end of an umbilical cord in the heart of the lion den where they're compromising themselves, their families, putting themselves at great risk, takes a great deal of that trust that takes time and, and reinforcement to build. And I want to use the example of Bilal, yeah. who you mentioned in the book, to help our listeners understand a little bit more about some of the things that you've been speaking about. But before we go on to that, just briefly, what are some of the innate characteristics that you say have existed since 1947? For case officers, I believe it's an ability to deal well with ambiguity, to deal well with dynamic and fluid circumstances that change on a dime. 
to be able to think through what's going on in a logical manner under the most amazing amounts of pressure, which could be at least end of your operation, your arrest, to physical harm and death. So having that sort of courage, I would say, maybe a fair way to do it, or at least sang-froid, to be able to think through something and still be able to think logically and not get tunnel vision, as is easy to do, and under those circumstances to still nevertheless prioritize. What's the most important thing I need to do now? Oh my gosh, I'm under surveillance. Oh my gosh, there's someone at my drop site or my pickup site for an agent. What do I do in terms of priorities? And the priority is always going to be operational security. There's always a tension of mission versus security and what you want to accomplish and then doing it in a safe way. So that sort of ability to deal with all these events, the fluidity are really key. And then it's about being able to sort of sit back, if you would, and listen. A lot of people are really busy on send, right? They always want to talk about themselves and they want to, they just like the attention. They like the response. They want to make people laugh. They want to make people interested and stuff. And you've got to do that to be sure, but you're not the center of attention. So here's the irony. Case officers tend to have huge egos. They do. You have to, I think, to do the job because you need a level of self-confidence that could withstand all of which I've just said. But then you have to subdue yourself to not being the center of attention, to not talking about yourself, to not highlighting how great I am and how wonderful I am, but basically just keep validating the agent or the target before they become an agent, how important they are, how important their beliefs and their dreams are. And maybe we can do something about that together. That's not an easy combination of personality traits when you take it. And that by saying this egotistical, self-confident, maybe overconfident case officer also has to be satisfied with no attention, with rewards to be mostly personal satisfaction. There's no TV cuts. There's no newspaper, God willing, no newspaper articles, right? Nobody might ever know and hopefully will never know what you did. You might have just saved the day, disrupted a terrorist operation, stolen the manual of the newest Russian jet fighter that will save our pilots and give us advantages to air defense and such like that. But all you get is basically, well done, and maybe some of the respect of those peers who can know because it's compartmented. So it's not like even everybody in the agency will know about it. So put all that together, and that's a very unique individual. Wow. You mentioned coercion. So here in the museum, we have the the kind of classic acronym, money, ideology, coercion, ego. Yeah, help us understand coercion a bit more. So are other intelligence agencies and other countries using coercion? I think a lot of our listeners, the ones that aren't in the IC, or even some of the ones that are, their understanding of recruitment might come from watching movies where you take photographs of someone who's married and has kids and they're in a compromising relationship. And I mean, just off the top of my head, that seems like quite an effective source of leverage. So does that not happen? Do you not? So sure, you're looking for their soul and how to connect with them on a deeper level. But if you have, if you have something that can be used to leverage them straight off the bat, why would you not use it? So what you're talking about, the Russians call mice, the whole money, coercion, compromise, all that sort of stuff. And the Russians still use it and they like it. And it's, it's easier in a lot of ways. It's real simple. You don't need this whole romance and dancing around and such like that, do you? You take dirty pictures of somebody, you, 
you find out they're an alcoholic or a drug addict or whatever the case may be, and you threaten them. And the Russians do this, the Pakistanis, the Iranians, the Chinese. I mean, a lot of, if you notice a trend, police states, authoritarian governments, the Saudis, they use it because they don't have the time, they don't have the patience, they don't have the training, and they don't have, ironically, for countries that generally tend to have a longer view on policy and international affairs, they have a very short view when it comes to intelligence collection. So they do use that. And it was really interesting being in the agency when some of the former Soviet states were becoming partners of ours, right? Liaison partners that would show intelligence. And they'd want to work a case together, join case. And, and it wasn't infrequent that their cases were compromised just like that. There was some target of great interest to us who they had blackmailed. And they would be all proud of showing us the video and, and things that God knows I, I still have lost years of my life trying to get some of those <laughs> things, right? But as I said, the benefits, I think, are not worth it in the sense that, yeah, and I'm not saying the agency doesn't always use a bit of that dark trait to get their foot in the door just to get somebody to talk to them. And there's a case in point that I talk about in my book about a character I named Yusuf, who was a terrorist facilitator, who I used the, the possibility that he could be extradited by the country in which he was detained to a place that wouldn't treat him very well. But I very quickly used that to adjust to a relationship where he was invested. I mean, this was a terrorist, right? So not somebody I'd want to meet clandestinely and put my life in their hands or trust their intelligence. So somebody who's coerced is never going to give you 100%. They're never going to give you the full truth. They're going to do just enough to keep that pressure off of them. They'll often disappear, even the services that we work with, where I, I saw their cases where they had compromised these people. These were people that as soon as they get out of harm's way, perhaps they were serving while they were in the country they were assigned to, our partner's country, and as soon as they got away, they were never to be heard from again. And most importantly for an agent, we talk about the factories in place. I think people would have read that phrase. We don't really use it in, in the CIA. We talk about an agent in place. We want a long, sustainable operation. We want production. We want to be able to nurture a case where the agent moves up. That's partnership. That's cooperation. You're not going to get that from sort of a one-time, okay, what do I need to, to get you to tear up those pictures or not tell my, my wife or whatever like that. It's very limited and it's very unreliable. I can't imagine trying to provide an intel report to a key decision maker and standing behind the source description because every raw report that any USIC agency does has a source description and a context statement to give the reader the most informed judgment on how much can I rely on this information? Is the veracity reliable? Is the access reliable? Do they really know what they're talking about? Are they trying to influence? Are they trying to deceive? Is it a double agent operation? How do you write a source description for somebody who's blackmailed where the reader is going to really take the risk? In my Georgetown class, we talked about an agent called Polyakov. He was a famous GRU officer. And one of his biggest contributions to American security was he was head of the East Asia group in the GRU. He provided enough insights on the relationship between the Soviet Union and China that gave Richard Nixon the confidence to reach out to China and establish diplomatic normalized relations. How could you stand behind his intel for such a grave consequential decision? With Bilal, like, help us understand everything that you've spoke about through the the lens of that particular vignette that you sketch out in the book. So there's you, there's Bilal, and a very important third figure, Johnny Walker Black. Yes. <laughs> Tell us a little bit more about All the case the, of Bilal. Those complementary elements. So 
Bilal was actually the first agent I ever recruited. And, and I talk in my book about just the weird kind of sensation of being called a spy by someone for the first time. Bilal was what you kind of look for sometimes. And I'll say, and I profess that most anyone can be recruited at the right time and place based on circumstances, based on precipitating events, right? What's going on in their life. So whatever their disposition, you need also a certain precipitating crisis often to come to play. People sometimes say, and I've heard even my colleagues, oh, you're looking always for the, the odd duck. You're looking for somebody who's got a, a mental disorder. They're a narcissist or what have you. Having recruited and handled agents I consider patriots that were trying to do all the right things for their country, having separated their country, their allegiance to their country, to allegiance to a government, I don't believe that. Bilal, though, was a bit more of an odd duck. He was a member of this country's ethnic minority. He had a great many particular talents that made him of interest to the ministry for which he served. He had, uh, was a funny guy, had a great sense of humor, often a very self-deprecating. And you'll see that, I think, uh, in a number of my stories. But for him, Bilal was particular because he tended to play the fool so as not to seem threatening to his masters, who were all from the, the main line, the main tribe, the main religion, to work his way up in the ministry. So Bilal was a funny Joe Kraken kind of guy, liked to tease, loved to tease, loved to make fun. And he was much more senior than I was. I was on my first tour. I was a junior officer. He was a very well-established senior guy, not like top level, but senior guy in his ministry. And I was able to meet him, fortunately, through my cover duties, which I can't detail. But my day job, as the agency will let me say, allowed me to have engagement with Bilal's office. And I had already kind of done a bit of study of Bilal. I'd heard about him through colleagues who were not in the agency. Because when you target somebody, you want to have at least indirect assessment so that you know what you're going to do going in. You know what you might say your elevator pitch is going in. You know how you're going to shape your persona. And I'm not talking about like what your name is. I mean, you are who you are. But are you going to be funny guy, subdued guy, academic guy, shy guy, whatever? What do you think you're going to be like in order to sort of get Bilal's, in this case, interest. Because remember, I said interested and interesting. It's easy enough to be interested in Bilal, but how do I get him interested in me? I was fortunate uh, Bilal and I hit it off. I used the pretense of actually something outside the office, but was acceptable. It wasn't like anything really bad that could get him in trouble, but it was just enough of an issue that he wouldn't really want to broadcast it. Again, that's part of the bait and switch. What's my in? to get him wanting to see me beyond just my bubbly personality. It has to be something tangible. We say the what's in it for him or her. Over time, Bilal and I saw each other at proper engagements at his office at first, and then maybe outside, and then ultimately at his house, which is not the best way to recruit somebody from a secure point of view, because you want to take things out of the public eye as soon as possible. And these days with social media and biometrics and phone tracking, it's much harder. It's a much harder job. But we'd spend a lot of time in his house, and, and Bilal was a talker. God love him. And even though a lot of what he would say at first was shaped to put on the persona he wanted me to see, that started to erode over time as he got more confident in me, as he saw my discretion that I wasn't telling anybody about a relationship. I never mentioned Bilal to anybody else. And agents, prospective agents, will test you for that. They'll want to see because they want to know how much we can be trusted, particularly those who can have believable, sad uh, consequences from their cooperation. A lot of this was done over peanuts and Johnny Walker Black. You're absolutely right. So this was a country where it was hard to get alcohol. 
particularly for the locals. It was an Islamic country and they were sort of strict on that kind of thing. And so early on, I just started gifting him because he made some mention, I think casually, came up organically about having had a drink. So I didn't ask him if he wanted a bottle of this or a bottle of that because that would be offensive, right? I just one day when he invited him to his house, showed up and said, hey, maybe we can open this up together. And he liked that. And in fact, I started providing him more. Actually, it was that and Playboy magazines. He just loved them both. And over time, sort of sitting around, and this is kind of maybe a little bit like dating or romantically looking at the stars, he would just start confessing bit by bit, bit by bit, which I would then reinforce by sort of recapping what he said, but in a context, not kind of forcing him at the beginning, but sort of over time, starting from empathy, not so much sympathy, but empathy to understanding to maybe where it becomes a bit more challenging, where the empathy goes to, don't you want to do something about this? How do you feel about just sitting by and watching these offenses to your community, to you yourself, where you're more talented than these people? So again, building on the ego, but not just in such a unnatural way that it seems insincere because people smell insincerity. I mean, you could fool some people because some people just want to be told, oh, you're great, right? But folks can smell it. And you have to deliver it in a way that's sincere by kind of tying it to specific issues, events, and best than anything, actions, making sure he knows you've been following closely everything he's been saying, such that you can remember something he said a month or two ago and put it in context of something that just came up tonight. That's sort of the way that with Bilal anyway, and generally for a case in which you're cultivating someone, you're just disarming them increasingly. You're getting under their skin in a good way. You're getting in their soul and you're looking at the world from their eyes so that when you relate what they just told you, it's from their perspective. You mentioned preparing for the moment where you're going in and you're going to adopt a particular persona. A few years back, I'd done a, an acting course in New York and we explored how to inhabit different characters, how to be different types of people. We mentioned the confessional nature of the work, but I just wondered if you could speak a bit more about that aspect of the tradecraft. Am I going to be funny, irreverent dog? Am I going to be solemn and grave? Am I going to be some other type of dog? Help us understand that part of the tradecraft. So it's based on your assessment of the target. And ideally, it may be a target you have some information of in advance, like I said, indirectly where maybe they've written things, maybe they have a reputation in the community, maybe other people have engaged them in conferences, seminars, meetings, what have you. So you have some sense of who they are. If you don't, it's a little bit trickier. It's sort of a bit on the fly and you're sort of responding, you're reflecting. We talk about mirroring a lot, right? And that's probably an acting thing for all I know. But mirroring their behavior, mirroring their tweaks and quirks and whatever. Are they telling a lot of jokes? So you tell jokes. Are they really serious and clearly have no interest in your sense of humor? Because I tell you, your jokes are the wrong person and my jokes anyway. You can just fall like a thud, right? And that's just an awkward and uncomfortable feeling. So you have to know how far to push. So if you have some indirect assessment, if you've done target analysis, which you traditionally will do on somebody you're specifically pursuing, you got to remember a lot of what we do is trolling as well. We're going to events. We're trying to run into people in places that no one will see the contact. So particularly if I'm pursuing a hard target where – and I say hard target, someone who lives in more of a police state where there's informers among their colleagues, their communities, that's what they do – I don't want to just go up to this person in the middle of a big diplomatic reception at their national day and go, hi, Doug London, US government, how are you doing today? Because everybody else is going to see that. So I will troll for them at events I think they may go to 
It's where I, I sadly, and I don't want to use this word too hard, maybe pimped my family a bit. School events, picnics, family outings, tourist events, whatever, where I know these people might be. I just happen to be there with my cute and charming family and kids, particularly for someone who may be there stationed without their family, who really adores children and will kind of gravitate. I know my poor kids thinking about this now. They have such trust issues. <laughs> so I have to go in with what I have if I have something and then decide, just as you were saying, how am I going to come across? So for example, if I'm going after a military officer, I'm probably going to leverage my experience in the Marine Corps. I'm going to leverage some of the training the CIA gave, which at least in my day, they put you through a pretty intensive power military course, which is a bunch of different special ops training, 12 weeks, including airborne, jumping on airplanes, doing land survival, doing interrogation survival, all these kind of things. So I might play up more the understated version of warrior because I'm not trying to pull off that I'm seriously a special operations person. I can't pull that off but that I have enough of the background that I can, in an understated, self-deprecating way, show an appreciation for their life if they truly are a special ops person in their country. And that's what they do for a living. They jump out of airplanes and they get shot at. And I go, well, you know, I, I have such respect for you because I, I've only just tasted a little bit of that just to understand it. That sometimes is enough to get in the door because if you've jumped out of an airplane – a fellow paratroopers automatically can respect you. It's an amazing thing. I mean, I've got like five jumps, right? And that's it, you know, just to get my badge, which didn't all go that well, but I made it. I tumbled out, but I made it. But that's enough to at least show you understand. And by being understated, but leveraging that will be an in for a military person. Approaching somebody who's more academic than just showing that, and case officers are traditionally a mile wide, but, you know, an, an inch deep at least enough of a taste of an appreciation for papers, studies, philosophers, writers, and being very forthcoming, not pretending to be an expert because that will do you great harm and saying, you know, I don't know much about that, but I was really impressed by the work of Immanuel Kant or whatever like that, just to kind of get it started because you don't want to be talking about yourself. You want them to be talking about them. So you just need enough to get it started, to have that appreciation for what's my persona? How am I going to be to them? So they, they are interested in me. We'll be right back after this. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. So 
Some of this reminds me of when I was a researcher doing my PhD, different people that I interviewed, I interviewed about over 100 people in the end, but different people wanted different things from me as an interviewer. Some people wanted me to be, they wanted to be the alpha person in the room and they wanted me to be the beta. So I was quite happy to do that if I could get the information. Some people wanted me to match them on their level and have an intellectual sparring contest so i was happy to take my shirt off and you know get down with that other people i kind of adopted what i called the colombo type persona where i pretended to be like a bit a bit of a doofus and just instruct me help me understand this but there was more going on underneath the surface just like with colombo so it sounds a little bit like that but again just to go back to what you were saying that's quite a difficult person to find how can you find someone that has got the reflexivity to observe what someone else is doing and to adjust based on how they're acting in the world and to know enough about everything to at least get your foot in the door. I mean, that's how do you even recruit, you know, your book's called The Recruiter. How do you recruit for that? That's like a very specialized skill set. First of all, those are excellent examples. Those are terrific examples, the interview process and such. And, and you are looking for somebody who could be a chameleon. But here's also part of the rub there. You're looking for somebody who could be a chameleon on the outside to the outside world, to their targets, but be completely transparent and faithful inside the level of integrity. So looking for that, the agency, as, as those of you who might have applied or are, are gone through some of the process, they ask some pretty bizarre questions or questions that most reasonable people would presume would be bizarre. They give you this one, and, and again, this is like centuries ago when I when I went through this, but they give you these weird tests that aren't necessarily academic, but just sort of, would you rather live under a rock or up on a tree? I mean, just really bizarre kind of things, but they must know what they're doing in terms of psychology. I think one of my concerns for the agency, and particularly going forward, I know they've made great strides in diversity, particularly since my time. And you look at the hallways, at least I did before I left, and it's, especially among the young, it's a lot more reflective of America, people of color, people with accents, people from different parts of the country, all of whom are Americans. But the agency has this history of looking for this, unfortunately, stereotypical, and it's, it's written in my book and others, you know, East Coast, Ivory League elite. And take that beyond not just to be the East Coast, but that kind of privileged, suburban kind of individual who may not have had to overcome a great deal of adversity, who may not have had to have been a chameleon to survive, just to kind of get by and make it in the world, but who sort of got everything handed on a plate. I think it's a danger for the agency to be relying on that. Now, that's an individual they might get through the security process, which also is exhaustive and if you want to imagine multiple root canals, that's not even close to how painful it is. I'm sorry. It's worth doing, but painful. But I'd like to see people who had a struggle. I'd like to see people who came from South Central LA or the Barrio or, or the South Bronx and had to use their heads and their smarts to do just that, to be what they needed to be so they didn't get on the wrong side of gangs, but they got along with the gang. So they weren't necessarily a threat or somebody they had to worry about. Not selling their drugs, but you, you know what I mean? So those are folks that might not always go to the best schools. They might have gone to community college. They may not have a college education. But I don't think the agency is quite there yet. But those are the personalities that you look at that are actually the most successful. When and I think, the, and I, I doubt the agency will confirm it, but it's been written enough that it is said in the, the DO that 80% of the recruitments 
done by 20% of the case officers. Because even with all of our vetting and looking for this personality type that we've seen since 1947, when they actually get out there and the rubber hits the road, not everybody could do it. Not everybody could pull the trigger. Often an amazing impediment is some people just can't get to like closing the deal. They can't get themselves to like bribe somebody. Like it's, oh my God, I don't bribe people. I, I grew up in Westchester. But yeah, we bribe people. We manipulate people. We leverage people. And there's an art to it. And there's a pride to take into it because if you're doing it right, you're doing it not only for God and country, but you're doing it in a way where you're responsible for protecting this person. You got them into it. You are going to dedicate your life to protecting them. And I think as we go forward, I really hope the agency can kind of look beyond some of its very rigid security requirements, which I agree, you got to make sure they're reliable because the secrets they have are life and death. But are you telling me naturalized U.S. citizens can't get that, can't be trusted, can't get through the security process? Are you telling me that somebody who grew up on the wrong side of the tracks can't be trusted? I, I don't think so. And I, and I believe they will be the better people to deal with adversity and ambiguity than others who lived a less challenging life. That's really fascinating. I think that from my point of view, I completely agree. If you find someone that can hustle, someone that can make a dollar stretch a thousand different ways, someone that's had to adapt to get out of a particular social milieu, then that's a pretty interesting skill set compared to someone that's never really had to work that hard for things. And I suppose one of the questions that that generates for me is, to me, the hustler is going to be able to do, I'm just mm. adopting a shorthand here, of course. Let's just call one the hustler. They're going to be able to do things and to be able to operate in a particular environment in the way that suburban kid isn't. But is suburban kid not better place to be a case officer because largely diplomats are engaging with the elite of a particular country or those are the people in positions of power or with, with access to secrets and the hustler may not feel comfortable being in those privileged social milieus whereas if you're suburban kid who's went to an Ivy League school and has mixed in those circles you're kind of accepted by people in the the foreign country because you're seen as of a similar ilk you're kind of like me but just from a different country whereas the other person would just I don't know would you not look at them and think well they're not really like me so just help us understand that a little bit more because I think that's really interesting it's a really fair point to make. You're absolutely right. Social status is really key in a lot of countries. So if I'm pursuing somebody who's a military officer who went to the best schools, the military academies, probably from a good family, is going to want that in kind. A lot of other cultures don't necessarily respect people who fought their way up through the system, right? Because they think you're in a very hierarchical world beneath them. So the case officer has to have the wherewithal to be a chameleon, to pull that off as well. They have to have a high ceiling. So it has to be somebody who can come across as what they need to be, the persona they shape, again, fitting the target they're pursuing. You automatically have an advantage as an American official overseas. You're special to begin with. American exceptionalism, right or wrong, exists and it's understood. It's disliked by a lot of other cultures, but at least it has a certain door. It has a, a cachet and an entree. So just being even a low-level American official 
in a, in a, from a government agency you may be pretending to work for, you know, a third secretary or an assistant attache or whatever, you've got that big, beautiful American seal on your business card that will open doors to you. You can actually, as I did many a time, crash parties, crash events just by well, an American embassy is like, oh, please come on in, sir, right? That kind of thing. It depends on the character of the person. When I was brought into the organization, I was unbelievably lucky. I had the, the nicest, most incredible man in the world who probably advocated for me. The first person that interviewed me who went under alias. I can't name him today, but uh, I still stay in touch and a longtime mentor. I lucked out because he even said, you're more a second story kind of guy. And I kind of knew I was in trouble when he was saying at the end of the interview, he goes, you know, usually at the end of the interview, I ask candidates, would you be willing to accept a job uh, outside of the clandestine service, like as an analyst or as a technical expert? But frankly, you're just not smart enough. Uh, and he was right. I showed up at my uh, EOD class, uh, entry on duty class, and everybody had the most lovely suits and dresses from the nicest stores. Uh, I had my suit from Sears. So I had to grow as well. And I was lucky that because I hustled and worked hard and, and really worked hard and could deal with people on any level, and I could pretend to be smart. I was certainly clever. So I could pretend to be smart enough to get it to the door. And again, that cachet of being a U.S. government official overseas, I made the most of that. And once I was in, I was in and able to do the job. How do you separate the skill set that you develop as a case officer from everyday life? So out there assessing, trying to recruit assets, and then you're just going through everyday life. Like here and ever, you did you like assess me and your personas based on what you perceive me to be and so forth, or or do you turn that off when you're not trying to recruit people? Of course not, Hank. <laughs> no, actually, you do. It's twenty four seven being a case officer, and the reason is is it's a vocation because if you're working in a U.S. government platform overseas. And you're whatever, you're CIA and you're a targeting officer, you're a collection management officer, you're an analyst. You work hard, CIA officers work hard, but they leave the embassy or they leave the government platform and they go home to their family and they need to be aware of their situationally, where is anything going on? Are people looking at them, following them? But they don't have to worry about establishing a pattern, a routine, a pattern of life under which everything they do operationally has to fit. There has to be some rational unsuspicious explanation to a local or third country counterintelligence service for every moment of your day. Why are you out at night? Why are you not out at night? Why are you in this area? Why are you transiting this place? Why are you making that stop? Because everything you do factors into, I'm casing sites for my agent. I'm going to meet my agent clandestinely. I need windows of opportunity where there's gaps in coverage of me that can be explained. I have to do something with my phone, all these things. It's 24-7. There's no day you can go, you know what? I'm just going to take a day off. I'm going to call up the local counterintelligence and say, hey, boys and girls, I'm just not working today. You don't have to worry about me. I'm just really hanging with my family. So at no point are you actually down. I mean, even since retirement, I'm still looking for surveillance when I'm driving. I just can't help myself. I'm looking at things going, what a good site that would make. Oh, it's a lovely alley because it's a lifestyle. And to do it safely, it has to be a lifestyle. You can't ever turn it off. You can't ever turn off your judgment and discretion. Am I under threat? Is something going on? Is there an opportunity here? Is there a threat here? So no, actually, you, you don't turn it off. What you do separate is the manipulation, okay? Inside, and obviously, or ideally with your family and friends, you're not manipulating them, right? But you're certainly always aware, you're situationally aware, you're looking for opportunities and thrifts everywhere you are, 
all the time. And that can be mentally and emotionally exhausting until such a point it just becomes life. And talk to us a little bit more about the life cycle of an asset. So the moment when you're surveying the landscape, looking for people, when you approach them, when you build a relationship, you mention in your book, doing the pitch and smelling blood and so forth. And then the process of running the agent and then managing people that run agents. And you mentioned when we spoke before the podcast, being a player coach. So there's like a whole life cycle there of that process. And some of the people that I've spoke to before that had the, a similar role to you, they've said that some people you find are very good at recruiting, but they're not so good at running and vice versa. And, and I suppose it's a little bit like academia. You get people that are good at teaching and people that are good at research. Sometimes you get people that are good at the pastoral stuff or the, the administrative stuff. But to get someone that's good at administrative, pastoral, teaching and research is, is very rare. So help us understand that life cycle a little bit more. Okay, sure. At the risk of getting in some trouble with some of my colleagues, because I actually differ on that. Okay. I differed when I taught at the farm. I differ as I teach as an academic. So if you're a case officer, you're handling a case, and I know some of my colleagues will say, oh, I was a really great handler. I wasn't an, I'll agree. I wasn't as good as recruiting because I didn't smell the blood, but I really was great at handling. I would say you weren't as great as you think you were because the job of the case officer is to constantly re-recruit their agent. You are constantly assessing them. You don't take them for granted either. Life happens. Life changes. So that which motivated them, that which pushed them to conducting this activity might have changed. Maybe life got better. Maybe their kid's healthy. Maybe they've been promoted at work. Maybe they've reexamined their life and they don't want to do this anymore. If you're not constantly seeing into their soul and assessing them and manipulating them and re-recruiting them and re-reinforcing the motivations so that you understand what's getting them to work for you and you keep leveraging that – then you're just not a really good case officer. You're probably a mediocre case officer who understands clandestinity. You may be really good at, yeah, I can run a great surveillance detection route. I could spot surveillance. I understand the mad minute of what I first say. I can collect intel. I know how to debrief. That's not being a case officer. You could train people to do that. Those are not intuitive skills as much. A lot of those are more mechanical skills. But the idea of seeing into somebody's soul and manipulating them and leveraging that that's a case officer. And that's why only 20% of the case officers are recruiting 80% of the agents because not that many people could do it. So I, I take some exception at that and I apologize for any cards and letters you'll get or hate mail. I get planted oh, already. So. So, so do I. Really, it's terrible. The smell of the blood thing, it wasn't my own invention. A colleague who I can't name said that about me. And I thought, well, that's a really good point because you just have sort of a sixth sense of seeing somebody. I mean, I would sometimes joke when I was a young, cocky case officer. Now I'm an old, cocky guy where I would say, I could recruit that asset in five meetings because there was just something that came across at my first encounter. There was something I felt, something I sensed intuitively, and I already knew Ah, I see it. I see the road path. I see what I'm going to focus on and what I'm going to manipulate. The lifestyle for an agent, those who you recruit, I mean, that's we lay that out very academically. There's a recruitment cycle. There's the whole target analysis part. If you're actually pursuing somebody specific, you you have a need to have an agent in the Russian office for hypersonic weapons, right? So you take a look at who you might know who works there and who might be accessible and what you know about them. Then you have the spotting where you actually see them, you find them, right? You make that first contact. We call it spotting. 
Then you have assessment, which is that cultivation time. Assessment, I'm starting to get an idea. Are they worth pursuing? Do they have the access? Do I think I can recruit them? And then having done that, you go into development. And that's the sustained, steady time on target where you're developing them. You're really doing the cultivation. You've got your assessment. You're validating, reinforcing. Then you get to the recruitment where you do the pitch, which again, some people have real trouble right there. They, they just... They keep developing. They just don't know when to, to pull the trigger. And I've, I've had some young officers who I've had to either push or kind of help them along the way. And then after recruitment, you get the whole handling part where they are being handled as their production and stuff. And then there's a life cycle of what goes on with them. Are they going to be turned over to a new handler, to a new case officer who then steps in and continues the case? Or are they going to be terminated? When we say terminate, it's like F firing them, right? But uh, ideally, in a nice way, you always want to leave them laughing, leave them happy, because one, you don't know if you might need them again in the future, and you don't want to provoke them if there is something that is a problem, and you don't want to reveal what you know if they're doing bad stuff about you. So that's the recruitment cycle, and there's no kind of fixed plan. Uh, as I said, the agent I talked about last night, Polykoff, lasted for 25 years. There are agents who last that long and agents that won't make it for months, I think particularly with counter-terrorist agents, they tend to be unfortunately short-lived, sometimes because their access is short-lived or because the U.S. government has such a proclivity to expose the information. That's that's unfair of me. Sometimes to disrupt a threat or to warn people, which they absolutely have to do, that could burn the case. But agents could last any number of years. And I remember one case, honest to goodness, and that was just long ago in my career, he was from the OSS days. This was a guy that was recruited during World War II who was still in the government more as an advisor at this point because he was really long in years. I mean, imagine doing a clandestine meeting with somebody with an oxygen tank. I'm for real, right? This is how you had to do a meeting with him. But God, he was an incredible gentleman. And he literally had been around at this point for over 50 years reporting. Wow. You mentioned the 80-20 split. 20% of the officers recruit 80% of the assets. Like for our listeners that may be in the private sphere, they may be thinking, is there not some kind of performance management issue there? Do people that you've had four tours and you've not recruited a single agent, like, I don't think you're really cut out for this. You need to get reassigned or something. Or or is it like a lot of government agencies where when people have got their foot in the door, it's very difficult to get them out and they stay within the institution. I realize that that's a, this is fraught territory that we're getting into here, <laughs> but just give us from the hip, like, what's your view on that? Oh, people are mad at me enough already, so I'm okay. But there's recruitments and there's recruitment. So the agency does, in fact, have a system of uh, performance, performance-based criteria, competencies that you have to live up to. And to be a full performance case officer, you have to have successfully recruited. And I'm not just saying one recruitment. You have to prove in you've mastered the competency. Sadly, one thing the Directorate of Operations does poorly compared to actually the other CIA directorates is they don't have the best performance evaluation system. Now, they've invested a lot of money in this over the years. I've seen this come and go and change many times, and, and, and it breaks my heart that every time we spend millions of dollars and bring some outside consultancy group, and they come in and go, here's how you're going to do it. But case officers, uh, we're getting back to now what we said earlier, they have the capacity to sometimes manipulate, and sometimes they will manipulate in the performance evaluation. And sometimes it'll be the supervisor who wants to make the officer look good or not good, but generally look good, look better, because that's a reflection on them. They think that if the officer succeeded, oh, it was because of my brilliance and my mentor and the mentoring and such like that. So uh, case officers can get through the competencies because 
there's recruitments and recruitments. There's like the, the Russian hypersonic office guy. That's a pretty darn good recruitment. And there's, you know, a safe housekeeper or a taxi driver or somebody who works at the local telecom company who basically you just need to throw money at. All of them can demonstrate the competency for recruiting, but it's really, really different. It's still those agents that provide those secrets that are life and death and, and inform consequential decisions that are few and far between. So there's lots of efforts to try to keep people to standards. But I think the deal for what it is, and it's really funny and, and sometimes embarrassing because in my capacity in some of the executive positions, it was a fusion center. So I had analysts and technical officers, and I'd look at their PARs, what we call performance appraisals. Now they call it PSRs, performance SRs. I forgot the S and the R. And they were much more honest. They were really honest PARs because God forbid you say anything negative in a DO part. Oh, no. Can't have anything negative. You can't even have an area for development because then, boom, you're ostracized. So you can't really be honest about an, an officer that they've got strengths and they've got weaknesses. And in the, in the DA, yeah, of course they have strengths and weaknesses, and they were still promoted accordingly because the part, the re, the revaluations were very honest. The trajectory was more honest and aligned with tangible products. Again, analysts are writing papers. Case officers have agents, which other people are evaluating. Did they handle them well? Did they not handle them well? People are really reluctant to criticize officially. Because, oh, my God, I'm going to get sued, litigation. It's all about litigation. So there's a lot more hallway file stuff going on in a DO. There's a lot more advancement or glass ceilings created by what is your hallway file? He's got sharp elbows or he can't recruit himself out of a paper bag. But they'll never say that officially. So you sit on a panel then if you're supposed to be on, as I've sat on many recruitment promotion panel, and you're looking at this body of work of the people that you're representing because you represent people on a panel. You're not, they're advocates. You're their representative. You could advocate for them if you think they've met the criteria for promotion. And you read these evals and you're trying to translate it. What do all, oh, I see the buzzwords. I see the language. They didn't like this person, but they didn't want to say it. Or, oh, this person really did great. And here's language I know. That's not the way to run a railroad. And unfortunately, Dio has never found a way out of it. And I think that whole cult of personality thing is just sort of a natural impediment. But they keep trying the standards. They keep trying to adjust them. And I'm sure in good faith and with good intentions, but it just they haven't found the right formula yet. This reminds me a little bit of academia in the UK. They've tried to bring in performance standards, which has led to a decrease in people writing books and more people writing articles because it's a shorter term payoff and there's something tangible. And this this has led to like a big debate. Well, the the books that take 10 years to research but make a major impact in a particular field, those books are not going to come out anymore because everybody's just focused on the seven-year cycle where everybody gets performance evaluated within. So how do you measure that as well? If you were a, a case officer and you recruit a Polyakov or a Penkovsky, then if you if that's the only thing that you've done in your career, the intelligence from both of them is so consequential that that's a bloody great career that you had versus, well, I recruited a hundred agents, but they were all chaff that never really led to anything or help us understand that kind of valuation of sources and of the intelligence that is culled as a result of having that source? That's really tricky. That's a great question. So it's really tricky because everything in CI is compartmented. So I'm reading somebody's case file. I can't know about all their cases. 
So when I'm reading their evaluation, it can't be recruited Polyakov, a senior GRU officer who provided information that I get recruited a sensitive source, maybe from a hard target country who provided information that was used in numerous finished products that influenced decision-making. Hmm. Okay. If it's really true, that's awesome, but you're interpreting that, right? And is it maybe a little embellished? There's always a risk there. Now, the way it's run now, uh, it's even a little bit more trickier, and it kind of breaks down sometimes according to cultural and, and gender, and I'll, and I'll tell you why. And this is based on HR experts who have struggled with this. So I told you case officers are very egotistical, a lot of self-confidence, uh, particularly, I would say, and it goes both genders, it has been found, according to statistics, that more men will think, yep, I can be in that job. I know I'm good for that. I'll apply for that. And we'll find less women. And when you ask them, uh, women that I've had work for me, why didn't you apply? I didn't think I was ready for the job. Wow. That's amazing. Where you ask uh, the men, it's like, fuck yeah, I could do it. But but you don't have this training or that. Ah, who needs that training or that qualification? Where I found female officers will go, but I didn't take that particular course. And I only have two tours and not three tours. So how do you allow them to succeed? How do you nurture them and advance them where the only people who might be applying for the job may be the wrong people, that you're missing people who are actually very well qualified, but look at the standards even differently. Take even people who now we call it petitioning for promotion. Officers actually have to now say, I am ready to be promoted. Here's my petition, right? Along with the evaluations they get from their supervisors. What if you have somebody who's amazingly humble and you can have still a case officer for great ego about the work, but amazingly humble about themselves, which is the perfect combination because that's a really reliable officer, right? Their integrity, everything about them, they're a straight shooter. When they get out the door, they're like all ego and whatever, but when they're in-house, it's like they're understated. Perfect, right? In terms of being part of a team environment. But what if they think, oh, I'm just not ready for promotion? But you really probably are. And if you're not petitioning for promotion, then I have this pool of people who may not be ready or as ready as you, but I've got so many slots of headroom, so I'm just going to promote the top 20, 25, whatever it is in that grade. What a disservice to them as individual performers and to the service by doing it this way. So I don't think we have it right. I, I think they keep struggling with it. And I think when they went to the system of petition, and we actually had something like that years ago because everything old comes back again, it just really discounted that human dynamic, which I find so ironic for a spy service, which would be all about human dynamics. But I tell you, it's night and day different to how they look at the world of agents and operations and how they look at themselves. And And I think we've got to find a way again, with inclusiveness to make sure we're being fair. And again, it's not just because it's the right thing to do. Lord knows it is, but it's in the best need to the service. When I talk about diversity, yes, it's the right thing to do, but it's likewise in the best need to the service. So if you want to kind of criticize, oh, you know, I'm just overstating my 2021 kind of guy because Lord knows I'm an old white guy, you know, from the caves and stuff like that. But I'm a spy and I understand what works in espionage. And actually, inclusiveness and diversity are strengths in espionage, not weaknesses. So there's like a double reason why this is a good thing in and of itself, but it's a good thing in terms of the mission and function of the agency. Absolutely, yeah. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit. If you want to donate to the museum, or if you're local and would like to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information.
Hey, listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey and share your feedback now. Now. 